Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. On today's California Report magazine, stories about Californians grappling with their past and figuring out how to forge ahead toward an uncertain future. We meet a woman who's been living for more than two years at an abandoned resort in Lake County after her home burned down in a wildfire. I left to do errands and I never got home, ever. And we'll hear about a millennial who moved to San Francisco to get away from her conservative past. She discovered her self-confidence as a pole dancer, but it's been hard to tell her mom about it. She's thinking like stripper in the club, like booty twerking, dollar bills being thrown. Plus a poet who's re-examining his farm worker past with some 40-year-old poems he discovered in his garage. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. We're starting our show today at the Kanakdai Harbor Resort and Spa in Lake County. It first opened 60 years ago, and over the years it became a getaway for working class folks. Complete with a 5,000 seat amphitheater, hosting bands like The Scorpions and Kiss. It seemed like an ideal setting right along the waterfront of Clear Lake, California's largest natural lake. But much like this poor rural county, the resort struggled and finally had to close more than eight years ago. KQED's Suki Lewis takes us to this place stuck in the past that's become home to some unlikely residents, trying to figure out their future. So we're just driving. We're just driving through the gate here. It says, welcome to Canocte Harbor Resort and Spa. UA Local 38 Plumbers and Pipefitters are the owners, I guess, who have sold it to new owners now. A flaking green billboard at the front gate still advertises Summerfest 2009, the venue's last hurrah. And there's like a, what used to be a fountain out front, but now it's just kind of like a murky pool of water with some algae growing in it. I'm just looking to hopefully bring it back to the glory that it once was. That's Jerry McDaniel. He's been hired by the new owners to help get this place back in shape. And he shows me around. I grew up here, so I grew up in Lake County. Okay, so you knew, you knew about this place. Didn't I you? knew about this place, yeah. So I, like, This sale to a Bay Area group that plans to develop the place could mean a new future for a place drenched with nostalgia. We walk down a hallway lined with framed photos of musicians, signed by Leonard Skinnerd, Mary Chapin Carpenter, Salt and Peppa, and into a crumbling concert hall with chandeliers hanging from a mottled and moldy ceiling. There's a lot of rain oh, damage. Yeah. Wow. And so 
it, it was just neglected. Let's go upstairs. All right. Okay. All right. What are those clothes there? Oh, um, this is for the fire victims. We, oh, yeah. That's right. We, um, fire victims. I am Bart Levinson, Valley Fire survivor. Two and a half years ago, Bart left her home on six acres of forest land to get some prescriptions filled. I left to do errands and I never got home, ever. Her home burned to the ground, along with nearly 1,300 other homes. And there would never be home to go to. And it's not just my home, it's my whole area, my whole town, my region, my county. After that disaster, the county and FEMA struggled to find housing for the thousands of people displaced by the Valley Fire. So that plumbers union, which still owned the shuttered resort, went to them and said, hey, we've got a couple hundred empty rooms. People could stay here. Bart checked into room 432 and never left. She now pays $1,000 a month for what's essentially a one-bedroom apartment. It's got a little kitchen, plates and dishes. It's great. <laughs> but it's not without its quirks. Out the sliding glass door, there's a hot tub that doesn't work. And everywhere, the green wood trim is just rotting away. There's a better place with more decay I'd want you to photograph. Okay. She says right after the Valley Fire, about 100 people were living here. Those survivors have now moved on, but each new season has brought Lake County a new disaster. The Clayton Fire, the Willow Point Flood, and new neighbors for BART. And then after the flood is when we got the most children. This past fire season was no exception. On October 9th, as residents across Napa, Sonoma, and Mendocino counties fled wildfire, BART woke up in the early hours of the morning, and she looked out across Clear Lake. This entire horizon was like molten lava oozing down. It, it was from that tree all the way over, total flame. Wow. That fire, known as the Sulphur Fire, burned down 137 more homes and created another wave of refugees. Now a total of 18 families displaced by three years of disaster still live here at the resort. There have been people who died here. There have been people who've gotten born here. It's a whole little village. It really is, it, yes. Kanakdai's new owners say they aren't planning to kick survivors out and may even rent to them long term. But as this place moves towards its new future, its longest resident is checking out. Bart Levinson finally bought a new house. I really thought differently before the fire about how you get through things. You just get through them. This is a different kind of get through. And uh, I can't explain it. I just know that other fire survivors seem to know it. Before I leave, I wander alongside the empty Olympic-sized swimming pool, a tiki bar missing its thatched roof. In the distance, a family of four walks their dog up toward the soggy tennis courts. And I wonder what the next season will bring to this place and these people. For the California Report, I'm Suki Lewis in Kanakdai.
And here's another story about people reinventing themselves after grappling with their past. You may have heard that a few weeks ago, Governor Jerry Brown pardoned a number of people with criminal records, including five immigrants facing deportation. One of them is someone we spent a lot of time with last year. His name is Daniel Meyer, and when we first met him, he was still on edge that ICE would deport him for his involvement in an armed robbery back when he was 21. You know, I understand the underlying reasoning behind deporting violent felons. It's just, does one moment in time justify changing a person's life for the long term? Or can we change it for the better, give that person a second chance? because he's shown that he's changed. I'm all for that second chance. Daniel has changed since that robbery more than two decades ago. Now he supervises the fleet of trucks at one of the nation's most state-of-the-art local recycling plants, the Ecology Center in Berkeley. Daniel's won accolades from the city government for his environmental advocacy and for mentoring at-risk youth in green jobs. But still, knowing he could get picked up by ICE at any time, Daniel was ready. He gave his wife a schedule of all of his bills. He always had money in his pocket to buy a toothbrush and a phone card if he got put in immigration detention. It's a complicated story. Daniel was born in Macau and came to California with his family when he was three. He grew up near San Jose. He was a permanent resident but he never got around to applying for citizenship. After that robbery, when he was 21, he served five years in prison, got out early for good behavior, but then got put in immigration detention. Here's the twist. Daniel couldn't be deported to the country where he was born because Macau had since become part of China. And China wasn't accepting deportees from the U.S. So Daniel was released with a temporary work permit, but was still technically deportable. Daniel's case recently got the attention of Governor Jerry Brown, who says Daniel has, quote, lived an honest and upright life and exhibited good moral character. Brown's pardon removes the felony from his record, which means an immigration judge would now have grounds to cancel the deportation order. Daniel says the news has taken away two decades of anxiety. It's like, I know I feel it, but I didn't realize that it affected my tone such that people can actually tell just by me being on the phone. I said, wow, you sound a whole lot lighter. And so the future is opening up. I know I can move forward now. Without a felony on his record, he could get a contractor's license. If he gets his green card back, he can travel to meet his wife's family in the Philippines. And he can be here to watch his seven-year-old son grow up. President Trump, though, has been tweeting about Daniel and the governor's pardons. Jerry Moonbeam Brown, Trump wrote, pardoned five criminal illegal aliens. Is this what the great people of California want? Daniel Meyer says Trump should take a deeper look. You know, if he really went beyond that and looked at each and every individual pardon that Jerry Brown assigned, you know, it's, it's not a frivolous decision. It's definitely something that's earned. You know, there's definitely a story there behind each one.
Next up, in event 401, please welcome... A woman walks on stage in a skin-tight halter top and skirt, both almost blinding with sequins. She goes up to a vertical metal pole anchored to the ground, just like you'd see in a strip club. But that's not where we are. This is a pole dancing competition. The dancer pulls herself up on the pole and spreads her legs wide in a midair split. It's kind of a gravity-defying V. Pole dancing can be sensual, and for some, it's hypersexualized. That's a bit tricky these days, at a time when there's so much discussion about sexual harassment and unwanted attention to women's bodies. In this next story, Nadine Sabai unpacks this complex sport by telling us about one woman's transformation. She found power and confidence in pole dancing, despite the stigma. Michaela Keating grew up in rural Indiana. Her family were conservative Baptist Christians. I always felt like kind of like the black sheep because everybody every Sunday you know they're going to church and I would I would you know be obligated to go and I'd just sit there and I was the one always getting in trouble for like questioning the Bible or whatever in Sunday school. And at school Michaela felt out of place. I mean I wasn't super unpopular but I was just kind of was like an awkward like chubby girl who was deemed weird from an early age. After getting into an argument with her family, Michaela decided she was done with Indiana. She moved to San Francisco and started going to college. Her insecurity about her appearance became overwhelming when a doctor wrote in his chart that she was overweight. It devastated her. So Michaela started going to the gym every day and lost 70 pounds. But something was missing. I lost all the weight, but like still mentally, I did not feel great about myself. About seven months ago, one of her classmates started raving about a pole dancing class she'd taken. Like a lot of people, Michaela thought pole dancing was mostly just for strippers. But she was curious, so she checked it out. And it was a revelation. She discovered she was stronger than she ever knew and that she could defy gravity. When you're up in the air, it feels kind of like flying because, you know, spinning around and... You're just in awe, like, oh my gosh, my body. I can actually, like, hold myself up now. I remember when I couldn't even do, like, a pull-up, and now I can just, like, pull myself up no problem. She ditched her gym membership and now devotes most of her free time to pole dancing at a studio in San Francisco. Up, and I'm latching on, so I'm just squeezing the pole with my torso and my But when Michaela calls her family back in Indiana, she doesn't talk about pole dancing. I don't know, if you were in my shoes, would you tell your mother? I mean, maybe, I don't know, people from California's parents are a little bit more like, oh, yeah, it's fine, whatever. But she's thinking like stripper in the club, like booty twerking, dollar bills being thrown. But pole dancing didn't become synonymous with sensuality until the 1920s. Dancing with, on, or around a pole has been part of many cultures. It actually began hundreds of years earlier and has roots in 12th century Chinese acrobatics. Poles were covered with rubber instead of metal, and performers would do tricks fully clothed. Now, pole dancing is just one more growing fitness trend, like yoga or Pilates, with over 70 studios in California alone. Michaela's first competition is at a small college in San Bruno, just outside San Francisco. Michaela and her partner begin the routine away from the pole with their backs to the crowd. One arm comes up over their heads at a time, and then they turn to the audience. 
After a sensual floor sequence, they move to the pole. The performance ends in a big applause. They don't win anything, but Michaela doesn't care. This is about fun, she says. A couple weeks later, Michaela came out to her mom as a pole dancer, and it wasn't as bad as she feared. Her mom was initially concerned about its association with strip clubs, but Michaela showed her pole dancing videos from class, and her mom accepted her. This is just the happiest I've been in like so long because of the confidence that pole gives you. Michaela says she's definitely going to compete again, but next time, she'll tell her mom about it. For The California Report, I'm Nadine Sabai. Be sure to tune in next week. Our show is going to get hijacked by a bunch of high school students. Student journalists will be behind the mic all week at KQED, where our show is produced. They'll be telling their stories, sharing their secrets, and talking about things that matter to them. Friendship, having a stable place to live, connecting to their cultural identity. Dance makes me feel like I can fly, but it also translates into my biggest fear, vulnerability. And though it's hard not to run away from it in my relationships, I can't run away from myself. I guess she was tr- trying to hide the fact of like what I heard. How are you going to tell your kid you don't know what to do, you know? Like your kids see you as like the adult. Slowly, he started coming less and less. Eventually, stopped coming altogether. I moved up to Boy Scouts without him and pushed through the ranks and positions. Days turns into weeks, weeks into months, and months into years. One day, I got an email asking me to go visit him. As a Tongan boy, at the younger age, you're required to like join the church choir. The kids, we sit in the front, and then on the row next to us are all the men. And when we listen to them harmonize, it's just, it's just like that. It's like a click. Listening to them is like a dictionary for us. Tune in to next week's Youth Takeover on the California Report magazine. Or hear it on our podcast. Just look for the bear wearing the white earbuds on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. The wind sprays pale dirt into my mouth, the small, almost invisible scars in my hands. The pores in my throat and elbows have taken in a seed of dirt of their own. That's Gary Soto, one of California's most prolific Chicano poets and writers. He's the author of more than 40 books of poetry, novels, children's books, and musicals. He's reading from his award-winning collection of poems, The Elements of San Joaquin, which first came out in 1977, soon after he graduated from Fresno State's writing program. After a day in the grape fields near Rolinda, a fine silt washed by sweat has settled into the lines on my wrists and palms. Already I'm becoming the valley, a soil that sprouts nothing for any of us. He went on to win a Guggenheim Fellowship, and he's been a finalist for the Pulitzer and the National Book Award. Now a new edition of his very first book, The Elements of San Joaquin, has just been re-released 
updated with some new poems he found in his garage and some reflections for a 2018 audience. Gary Soto, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure, Sasha. You know, some critics have said that this book, which first came out in 1977, was really responsible for changing the course of Chicano literature, making it less rhetorical and more specific. You have all these tiny details in your writing, like specific memories of licking salt, playing with ants, things your grandmother said. How do you dredge up those kinds of memories when you're writing? You know, as a poet, I thought, well, I better show this territory that I live in, either the neighborhood a playground, the fields, the factories around the house where we grew up. And so, you know, for me, it was like, um, it was an awe experience of trying to provide a portrait of these places that surrounded me. And the small things, from ants to cans to bottle caps, you know, embedded in asphalt, uh, I really wanted to present that world. For, For one, it meant something to me. And if it meant something to me, it might mean something to someone else as well. Fresno now has this kind of famous poetry scene that really was scratched out of the dirt there. And you got a lot of young people coming up through the program at Fresno State, but they might be coming from farm worker families, you know, people who are pressuring them to, in their family, to, to get a job, to earn money, to, you know, not take on something like being a writer. It's true, Sasha. I think that my parents really had no notion that I would ever go to college. Uh, having graduated from high school with a 1.6 GPA, my mom would tell me, as long as you stayed out of jail, you'd be okay. That was like a low-level expectation. And young people coming from uh, small towns outside of Fresno, agricultural towns, towns that are isolated, there's a lot of self-doubt. And that self-doubt can be cured when you find other people who are doing the same thing. You know, having lived in Fresno myself, I love that you write not only about the rural parts of the Central Valley, but also about the very urban grittiness of some of its neighborhoods. You grew up on the west side of Fresno. It's always been a very multiracial place. It's grappled with poverty. It's now very industrial. And a number of the poems in this collection talk about that. People have certain notions about Fresno, and it's a lot richer in people life and uh, complexities. My wife is from there. I'm from there. And I do speak honorably of Fresno at all times. You were a farm worker as a kid, and in fact, you worked in the fields all the way through college. One of the new poems that you've added to this collection is about that tension, about being a young college student while still working in the fields to make ends meet. Dirt. Apology to Wallace Stevens. The philosopher says the soil is man's intelligence. If so, workers are smarter than any professor. We, with a hose... The horizon flat will return. The sun comes up angry. Wind bullies us from behind. As we space beet plants with tiny golf swings, I say to my brother in the next row, we're smarter than you think. He looks up with a dirty face. What are you talking about? I answer with a laugh, say, as I slaughter two more plants, I got the two sandwiches to eat. How about you? My brother pleats his brow, tells me to shut up. I do. The wind pushes. The sun's half wafer of light reddens. A dog's bark echoes from beyond the canal where workers will later wash at day's end. I'm glad to be by my brother. Glad for this education in the big boss's skinny rows. 
I chop my beats, keep my mouth closed. I think to myself, I'm in college. I'm in a field where crows follow me like guards. I think of the philosopher dead 40 years and covered smartly in the same ancient dirt lifted and falling from my hoe. What's it like to look back on this work that you wrote, you produced when you were in your early 20s, nearly 40 years later? I finished the book when I was 22, and uh, I was published when I was 24. So I'm thinking, my attitude was certainly serious. And uh, over the years, my, my work would lighten and uh, you know brighten with comedy and uh, love angles in my work. But I, I looked at this, and I thought, this is a very broody young man. Gary Soto, thank you so much for talking with us. It's my pleasure. Gary Soto's groundbreaking book of poetry, The Elements of San Joaquin, has just been re-released and updated with new poems. He'll be at the Los Angeles Festival of Books this weekend. And for our series, A Place Called What? A Town Reinvents Itself, or at least its name. A Place Called What? 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 Como? What? Getting directions to Happy Camp. We've been asking you for your ideas about California places with unusual names. Claudia East sent us a note about Happy Camp in Siskiyou County. She lives in Wairika, a couple hours away from Happy Camp, and she's on the board of the Siskiyou County Historical Society. Claudia says the town is a small tourist attraction now, but during the gold rush, Happy Camp wasn't always so happy. Happy Camp was referred to in the early 1850s as Murder's Bar. There were miners in the area, and they went out to, you know, mine for gold and get through the winter. They had what they needed. But apparently, there were others who came, and they didn't know what the winters were going to be like and how harsh the area was. There was conflict, and supplies were fought over as well as perhaps the gold digging areas. There must have been uh, some deaths. It was, you know, the wild, wild west. Later, it was called Happy Camp. People were very happy they didn't get murdered and that was the name. Uh, The local stories also say that it was called Happy Camp because someone said it was a very happy place to be because they found gold. The town is very small at this point in time. I think there's around 1,100 to 1,200 residents. It is not for people who are looking for great luxury, but people who live there don't want to leave. Thank you.
Bianca Taylor produced that interview with Claudia East from Wairika. Keep sending us your ideas for California places with unusual names. You can drop us a note at calreport at kqed.org. And that's the California Report magazine for this week. We're a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller. And we had additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. Our senior editor is Victoria Mauleon. David Marks is our web producer. And Nadine Sabai is our intern. Our team also includes Carrie Feibel, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Koka. Thank you for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H dot com. Block Construction. Together, building greatness. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get the Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.